You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hey, everybody. Dave here with a quick request. If you could leave us a review on whatever platform it is you listen to this show, it'll help spread the word and grow our audience. So please take a few minutes and share why you think this podcast is a valuable part of your day. Thanks. Here's the show. For strong authentication to really take root at scale, it needs to be easy for people to use. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Andrew Shikiar. He is Executive Director and Chief Marketing Officer at the FIDO Alliance, and we're going to talk about why phishing and passwords remain such a big security problem and some of the potential options for doing away with passwords. And we are back. Joe, why don't you start things off for us this week? Dave, this week I found a really interesting article from Sophos. What Sophos did was they worked with a company called CypherTrace to track sextortion emails from September 1st of last year to January 31st of this year. Uh, 2020. And what CypherTrace does is they are a cryptocurrency tracking company. Their mission is to help banks with anti-money laundering operations because one of the big fears is that cryptocurrency can be used as money laundering. But CypherTrace takes a look at the blockchain and actually one of the drawbacks of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that it is a public ledger. So everybody can see where everything goes on the Bitcoin blockchain and CypherTrace capitalizes on that and helps banks make sure they're not helping criminals launder money. Okay. Sophos was tracking a this sextortion scam. This is the scam where somebody says, hey, I got a video of you while you were looking at this uh, illicit site here, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I got some video of you doing some unsavory activities and, oh, you have some weird tastes, they'll say. And, oh, by the <laughs> right, way, to prove right. it to you, here's your username and password, right? And th- right. it's a username and password or password from an old breach. It's, it's just totally a scam. Yeah. But these messages were so prolific that at points in time during – this campaign from September to January, they were making up 4 to 20% of all spam traffic on the internet, hmm. right? It would range and it would peak in the percentage of spam traffic. And they have some great graphs in the article that you should go look at. And you can see how these spikes happen over time. And you can see when these scammers are sending out emails. Mm-hmm. Now, these emails themselves were actually very well crafted to get by the spam filters. They did things like breaking up words with invisible random strings Because a lot of email is done over HTML now, almost all email is done with some kind of HTML, you can can hide that string. But when a machine looks at it to analyze it for spam, it doesn't see the words that the human sees, right? So Mm. you and I would read it and understand the meaning, but because there's all this garbage text inserted that's not shown to the user, it doesn't work for spam filters. And the machines can't determine it's spam. Hmm. They use some non-ASCII characters that like Cyrillic letters that are similar to English language characters. So that again, you would see a letter and it might be a row or the Russian P, right? The Cyrillic Mm -hmm. P, which is actually R in that language, but it looks like a P to you. And the spam filters couldn't determine that that was a a word that contained a P. They'd think it it was a word that contained the row letter. 
from hmm. the Cyrillic. I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's called a row in Cyrillic. I know it's called a, a row in Greek. So they would use a bunch of these obfuscation techniques, and sometimes they would actually include things in an image as well. So that's how they got by their spam filters to increase their penetration into the marketplace. Over the course of this campaign, these actors used 50,000 Bitcoin addresses, hmm. and only 261 of them received Bitcoin during this time frame from September to the end of January. Uh, and the, the total amount of Bitcoin they received was 51 Bitcoin, or $473,000 in the article. I don't, don't know how no. they're calculating the uh, the value of Bitcoin. I mean, th that is such a wildly fluctuating value, it doesn't. Yeah, still a lot of money. It's a lot of money, right. These addresses would only be used briefly, about a 2.6-day average for a Bitcoin address. So they were creating addresses and then deleting addresses, or creating addresses and then not using them again. The article says that as far as scams go and, and cyber operations go, malicious criminal cyber operations, this is a small payout of $473,000. But hmm. I don't take that stance. I agree with what you just said. <laughs> this is a big payout, okay? Because you look at it this way. The effort was minimal. This thing was probably minimally staffed. It may have been three or four guys, if that many. It's very inexpensive to pull off. Sending spam is cheap. Buying the email lists is cheap. Getting the information from these uh, other marketplaces is cheap. And as the article points out, it requires very low skill and there's no need to compromise a victim's computer. All you have to do is send an email to them. And hmm. you've succeeded in the first step of this operation. Now, on Twitter yesterday, and this is just anecdotal, but I noticed that there were a lot more of these sextortion emails going around. I, I was looking for the catch of the day, and I see like sextortion email after sextortion email tweet yesterday, and they're all from yesterday. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, did somebody else read this article and go, huh, those guys made half a million dollars? <laughs> right, right. And now, because this, this article came out a couple of days ago, and I'm thinking there are, <laughs> there are people out there going, well, we should do this too. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how effective it will be in the future. Anyway, that's just me speculating wildly. The folks who are trying to track this money down, it, it's my understanding that there are services within this cryptocurrency world that will sort of mix your money with other money to try to, to yeah. make it harder to track where the money goes. Actually, that's the next point is what did they do with their money? And this mm -hmm. article has a really great series of graphics and Cypher Trace has done a really good job of showing you where, where the money went. Because like I said, if it's Bitcoin, it goes on the public ledger. And they mm. found that about 10% of the money went to carding sites and other criminal marketplaces, right? So if you have money that you've gotten from criminal activities, it is absolutely no problem to spend that money on other criminal activities, right? Oh, I see. Mm. And drug dealers have absolutely no problem giving another drug dealer $5 million. They don't have to launder that. They just go, oh, you want $5 million? Here, here's $5 million and give me whatever drugs you want, right? It's, right, it's not right. a problem. The problem is when you want to use it. Here's something I found really, really interesting in this article or in, in the trace. 44% of the Bitcoin they collected went to exchanges. Now, an exchange is essentially something where anybody can keep cryptocurrencies, right? So you can go out to an exchange and open up uh, an account but the problem with these exchanges, or not really the problem, but one of the things with these exchanges is if they want to operate legally, they have certain identification requirements. You have to prove you are who you say you are. And 44% of this money went into those kind of exchanges. Now, 15% went into what the article classifies as high-risk exchanges. This is an exchange where you don't have to provide your identification. Now, it's classified as high-risk because the people who operate the exchange may very well 
be planning on pulling an exit scam, which is where mm-hmm. they, they essentially take all the money and just disappear. That's their goal. So that's why they're classified as high risk. And only 15% of the money went to these exchanges. And the rest of the money went to a variety of places, including some that went to dark market. It was a surprisingly low number that went to these Bitcoin tumblers. These Bitcoin tumblers are what you're talking about, where they throw their money in there and they just start mixing it up with other money and then it comes out. I really don't think that that's a good way to hide money anymore. I, I don't. Hmm. I think that companies like CypherTrace might do a good job of identifying what goes in and what comes out. Well, let me ask you this. If, if 44% of this money is going to exchanges and exchanges have reporting requirements, right. wouldn't that mean that law enforcement would be able to swoop in and figure out who these folks are? I, I think it may very well mean that. A lot of that money could be seized or, or that money or the, those people could be identified. There might be some plausible uh, deniability. I don't know. Yeah, but they, maybe they're just in a, in a place where they don't care about that. They're, right. uh, yeah. you know, their local law enforcement doesn't cooperate with international law enforcement, and so it could be that as well. Yeah. It could be that they're uh, putting Bitcoin into an exchange to exchange it for something like Zcash, which has anonymous transactions, right? Hmm. Which you can mm-hmm. do. You can change one cryptocurrency for another and then push it out of the exchange, and it's gone, and nobody will ever see it again. Interestingly enough, some of this money went to gambling sites, right? Two percent. Mm. Of the mm-hmm. gambling sites. So these guys like to like to gamble online. And 11% went to private wallets, which is a wallet that somebody has set up on their own machine. I see. If any of the wallets had IP addresses associated with them, all of those IP addresses were protected by VPNs or they were associated with Tor exit nodes. So uh. there, there is no way to identify, to geolocate these IP addresses because they came out of the Tor network or a VPN. I think this article is fascinating. I don't know. It's, it, it doesn't have a really big social engineering component other than the source of the money. But I am absolutely fascinated by the concept of money laundering and how it works. Interesting stuff. So yeah, hats off to the folks over at Sophos and uh, the team at CypherTrace for uh, collaborating on this. Yeah, it was good work. Check the article out. All right. Good stuff. Well, uh, my story this week comes from uh, Krebs on Security. Brian Krebs is a well-known and well-respected online news publication. Uh, And this is titled, When in Doubt, Hang Up, Look Up, and Call Back. That's right. This story traces someone who is tech-savvy who got taken for around $10,000. There is a, a mostly a happy ending. He ends up getting most of the money back. But it, it's really a cautionary tale that this person thought he was doing everything right and uh, speaks to some of the sophistication of the bad guys here of how they lead someone along. So this person uh, got a phone call from uh, someone who claimed to be from his financial institution, and they called him and said that they had detected fraud on his account. The caller ID from the call matched the phone number that was printed on the back of his debit card. Right. But the, again, this person being savvy, being someone who actually uh, knows a thing or two about uh, security, logged on to his online bank account ledger and found that, sure enough, there were some small charges that were on his card that he had not done. Withdrawals from his debit card, under 100 bucks each. But there were also a couple of withdrawals, uh, a few hundred dollars from an ATM in Florida. Now, one of the things that uh, this person thought was that if this was someone who was trying to commit fraud, they would likely ask for personal information. And the person on the phone did not ask for any personal information. Um, this person just said that the bank was going to reverse the charges, and they would be sending a new debit card via express mail. And so this, uh, the person who was being scammed thanked the, the, uh, the customer service person on the other line 
and hung up. So the next day, this person gets another call about some more suspected fraud on the bank account. Um, and, and this time, more of the alarm bells were going off. So he decided to call his bank's customer service department. And this is something that, you know, you and I have said many, many times, right? right? Rather than take the call, you know, hang up, call the number that you have, the number you know is correct. <laughs> not, right. not necessarily the number you Google, right? Like, right, yeah, go the to number that, or the number yeah. that's on the back of your debit card in this case. Right, right, exactly. So what he decides to do is uh, keep the customer service person, the alleged customer service person on the phone mm-hmm. on one line, put that person on hold and call the bank at the same time. Right. Now, in the past, uh, his financial institution had verified his identity over the phone by sending him a code on his cell phone number, basically a verification code right. saying, OK, to make sure this is you, we're going to send you this code, read back the code. OK. Yep. So uh, that's what happened with the uh, original person who had called him. They, they said, we're going to send you a code. Please read back the code. Really? Yeah. So the first so he person gets, sent him a code. The first the person sent him a code, which who is code. the scammer, sent him the code. Okay. So he gets the code. Again, this is nothing out of the ordinary. Right. This has happened before. It's he easy reads back, to do. He reads back the code. The person on the other end is, is assuring him that the, he won't have to pay any of the, the phony charges. And he checked his account over the next few days and nothing bad had happened. The weekend goes by, and then on Monday, he logs into his account, and he sees that $9,800 had been wire transferred out of his account. So he calls his financial oh, institution. Oh, I see. Yep. He gets uh, put through to their fraud department. Uh-huh. What do you think happened here, Joe? You, so, you want to make a guess? Yeah, let me see what happened here. So I don't know how they got the – they had his username and password, or they were on the phone with, with his bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scammers were also on the phone with his bank looking to do uh, – trying to do a wire transfer impersonating him. Right. So they call him and they say, we're going to send you a text message. You know, we're from the fraud department. We're going to send you a text message. And then right. it's essentially a man in the middle attack from what I'm seeing, Dave. The bad guy calls his bank impersonating him and also at the same time calls him and says, we're, we've noticed some fraudulent activity. We're going to send you a code. Then the bank says to the bad guy – uh, in order to do this wire transfer and make sure it's you, we're going to send you a code. And mm-hmm. then the the bank customer gets the code and gives it to who he thinks is the fraud department. But that guy just turns around and gives it back to the bank, and that authorizes the transaction. Yep. Yep. That is exactly right. That is that is, that is exactly what happened. Right. Um, okay. And they That's- also uh, – they speculate that probably this all began when his debit card and PIN number – were skimmed at a gas pump or something like that. Okay, so, and so that's he got his probably, debit card skimmed, and that's why yeah. he's seeing the, the fraudulent transactions. Correct, correct. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting uh, point here is uh, that the scammers had also called his bank and told them that he was going to be traveling, that he's going to be in Florida on vacation so that when the bank saw that these charges were coming from Florida, which is where the scammers were, right. it didn't raise any red flags because they had been warned ahead of time that he was going to be traveling. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. So these so people uh, knew what they were is, doing. That is a very elaborate scam. It is. That is remarkably good from an, a level of effort standpoint. I mean these yeah. guys have more thought and savvy than the guys in my story do, right? 
Um, yeah, yeah. But, and how interesting that just getting a few hundred dollars at a time from a stolen credit card wasn't enough for them. They decided to take it to the next level and had some success there. Yeah. Well, and how much of the money did he get back? Pretty much all of it. In fact, okay. I think he did get all of it. The story here says that the bank was able to claw back the wire payment before it went through. And the bank also gave him back the money that had been stolen over the, you know, the, the, the smaller amounts that had been stolen from right. his debit card. So it seems as though he was made whole. One of the other things the fraudsters did to keep from raising attention with the bank is they opened an account in the victim's name at another financial institution, and that's where they were transferring the large amount of money to. Oh, wow. So okay. to his bank, they would see a transaction going from the victim to the victim. Same right. name, right? right? Same information. So that doesn't raise as much of a red flag as it would if it were a large amount of money. Just you know, It just doesn't receive the, the amount of scrutiny that it would. And um, one of the things that Brian Krebs points out in the article is that if this person had placed a security freeze on his credit file with the consumer credit bureaus, the fraudsters would have had a much harder time opening the account in his name yeah. because that they wouldn't have been able to do that. That would have flagged that there. That's right. Yep. That would have, that would have stopped that from happening. But uh, the title of the article is When in Doubt, Hang Up, Look Up, and Call Back. The one thing I don't like about that title is When in Doubt. I say always hang up, look up, and call back <laughs> um, because this guy had absolutely no reason to doubt what was going on. Right. Uh, this scam is so well crafted that this doesn't raise any red flags. Hey, your bank security department is calling you to talk about some fraudulent activity. And then you log into your bank, your actual bank account, and you see fraudulent activity happening. In the process, they say, okay, we're going to send you a code and read the code back. I mean, because now they've told you something that is verifiably true. Right. Right. Read the code back. Okay, here's the code. Well, that code enables them to transfer this money out to an account that is named in your name <laughs> that yeah, they control. Yeah. yeah. So from your point of view, everything is is running the way you would expect it to, the way that you've running, experienced it in the past. Exactly. And this could have been stopped just by a phone call saying, look, I don't give this kind of information out. I'm going to call you right back and then hang up and then dial that number in the back of your uh, credit card and say, I need to talk to the security and fraud department. Right. That would stop it. Yeah. Because they can spoof the number from the bank pretty easily. Right. But they can't reroute that call very easily. I'm right. sure it can be done. I don't know how, but they have to intercept the number. <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, again, that's uh, from uh, Brian Krebs's website. That's Krebs on Security. So do check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes. That is my story this week. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from Twitter user Necronomicon, at Necronomicon on Twitter, uh, except uh, the first O is a zero, right. uh, a, a koi zero, if you will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, And uh, this is uh, one of the many coronavirus scams that we're seeing here. Uh, this particular one is uh, requesting uh, donations from Medicare Australia. And Joe, you know what that means. <laughs> yes, I do, Dave. <laughs> the master of dialects, Dave Bittner. <laughs> it goes like this. 
This is a nationwide appeal in efforts against coronavirus COVID-19. We're experiencing a high demand for our services due to coronavirus and the extra financial assistance to population, but financial resources are limited. The Medicare partners are looking for individuals who can support in the purchase of medical equipment and supplies, mental health support and welfare initiatives to support staff and more, not just now, but in the weeks and months to come. Boy, this is I'm I'm losing the thread here. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I'll keep going. Okay. This is part of the government's response to coronavirus COVID-19. During this time of crisis, the Medicare will be there for you and your family. Now it's time to support all the Medicare staff providing that excellent care and say thank you. Please make a nominal donation aid in this crucial fight. Monthly financial reports will be provided to all our supporters in order to track the expenditures of every dollar spent in this fight against COVID-19. You can also do your part in saving lives by staying home. Stay at home. Only go outside for food, health reasons to work, but only if you cannot work from home. Stay two meters away from other people. See, it's metric, Joe. They use metric over there. Right. Yes, Wash do. your hands as soon as you get home. Donations made via bank transfer. Medicare Australia. Gosh, it's, I can. It's almost as if we're there, Joe. I can right. just. I can see. I just see koala bears and kangaroos. Uh, <laughs> Uh. <laughs> yep, wallabies. Wallabies, yes. Tasmanian devils. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the deadly snakes they have over there? Well, they all have all them. the deadly snakes. They over have there. all the deadly snakes. <laughs> and spiders. <laughs> yeah, it's just the continent that most wants to kill you. Right. So, uh, mm, and probably after hearing my uh, accent, everyone over there wants to kill me. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably correct. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, unfortunately, a pretty obvious scam here. The money that these pe- folks are requesting is not going to go to Medicare Australia. It's going to go to the scammers. So yep. uh, if you, when you see these things coming through, and there are a lot of them these days, right. uh, do double-check them. Get in direct contact with these organizations. Don't click through and just uh, provide money online because uh, you never know who it's going to. And these days, there's a good chance that it's a scam. Yes. All right. Well, coming up next, my conversation with Andrew Shikiar. He is the executive director at the Fido Alliance. And we're going to be talking about phishing and passwords and some of the options that are available for doing away with passwords altogether. And we are back. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Shikiar. He is the executive director of the Fido Alliance. And uh, we're going to be talking about phishing and passwords, uh, why they remain a huge security problem, and some of the options for doing away with passwords altogether. Here's my conversation with Andrew Shikiar. Historically, you know, we've, we've always relied on passwords. I mean, I mean, predating computers, right? I mean, passwords were a way of, of you know, sharing knowledge. Um, and they're based on, on what we call a shared secret, right? If you want to access something, I... I might hold the secret code to that. I demand the secret code from you. You give it to me, then I'll share information, right? Even in an offline, you know, scenario, old school. And our computer system has been set up the same way, right? Shared secrets where a, a server, instead of an individual, um, a server holds that secret, the password. And then to access anything on that server, you have to provide that the password. And once you provide that, you're given access to whatever th- that you know, information may be. And that's how you know passwords work. They're very, very simple. The, the problem with passwords is that anything that sits on a server you know, can be spoofed, can be stolen, and it will be stolen, as, as we've seen with, with the, you know, the never-ending uh, litany of, of data breaches that, that happen out there. So you know, as a result, 
you know, the industry is trying to move forward beyond, you know, just passwords to other forms of, you know, multi-factor authentication and easier forms of, of user authentication. Multi-factor authentication, of course, means having more than one way, you know, a, a second layer of, of authentication. So typically when it comes to authentication, there's kind of three key criteria. It's what you know, like a password, what you have in your possession, so proving that you, you're actually holding on to something, or the third one being, you know, who you are. So inherent, so something specific to you, like a biometric. A lot of multi-factor authentication, you know, over the, it's not new, over the past decade or so has focused on um, a second factor device in, in your hand. So those who are in the enterprise will, will you know, remember using like RSA tokens or, or dedicated mm. hardware, you know, tokens that have a rotating list of, of numbers or, or characters that you need to enter to say access a VPN or access some sort of system resource. You know, those have always been effective, but they don't, they don't scale terribly well. And, and ultimately, you know, those codes are also sitting somewhere on a server where they can still be stolen by a hacker through what we call a man in the middle or a replay attack. So that's, a, you know, that's a, another kind of factor of a, of a shared secret, if you will. So that, that's traditional MFA. The other way of proving possession, and you know, more, more recently, is just, you know, being able to validate that you're, you're in front of a device. And that's where we have things like we call it security keys. Uh, popularized by companies such as uh, Ubico and, and Google and Fatian and, and many more. Uh, these are more simple devices, frankly, where you just have to touch the device in your possession to prove that it is you in possession of that device on, on top of entering a password. And then more recently, I, I think that, you know, a popular form of authentication is, is biometrics. Um, that's been popularized on, on leading handsets through things like Touch ID, Face ID on, on iPhones a variety of, of mechanisms on Android phones. And that is a you know, very strong way of, of proving that you, know, you are both A, in possession of the device, and B, that you are you, uh, something unique to that individual. So there's, there's two factors actually in one gesture there with biometrics. And so we're seeing that become a more and more popular means of authenticating users to services, particularly mobile services on mobile handsets, but more recently, you know, we're seeing this biometrics being built into PCs and mm. MacBooks. So entire authentication platforms like Windows Hello um, for Microsoft, which is available on any Windows 10 PC, leverages you know, plat, you know, device biometrics to allow users to authenticate rather than being dependent on a password. And what are the limitations of the systems we have in place today? How are they inadequate as we go forward? The key challenge we have today is, is a centralized means of authentication, right? So this idea that of, of shared secret authentication, that does not meet anyone's means going forward because that's what's been at the root of so many data breaches and phishing attacks and things like that, right? Hmm. So um, FIDO Alliance itself has formed to really to solve the data breach problem. And, and the, the, the tip of that spear are passwords, right? Passwords lead to you know, the vast majority of data breaches either by a password being, you know, hacked that provides access to system resources or someone's fished and is spoofed into providing access or, you know, passwords are sitting on a server somewhere that gets stolen that, that provides, you know, access to even more sensitive data, you know? So the, the problem is this entire you know, model of authentication, which is, is entirely unsuitable and not fit for purpose for, you know, today's economy and tomorrow's economy. And so what we really need to do is, is, is move beyond this model of, of depending on server-side shared secrets, you know, most notably passwords. And so what do you propose going forward? 
So what, what FIDO allows you to do and, and is uh, leverages something called asymmetric public key cryptography, which is obviously a mouthful, intentionally a mouthful, but it's <laughs> public key cryptography. Just because it's a mouthful doesn't mean it's hard to use. In fact, it's very easy to use. What this does is it introduces a concept of something called an authenticator, which is both a, a concept and a thing. And that, it, that, that sits between you know, the user and, and the server. And even that's more, I'm making it more confusing than it needs to be. It basically means using the device that's in your hands today. Right, so I can authenticate locally to the. You know, I'm looking at my desk right now. I have a, an iPhone and a, and a Lenovo ThinkPad. I can authenticate to either one of those and have them basically serve as an intermediary to the service itself. So what happens is I have what's called there's a, a key pair. I think this is a virtual key pair um, that's created when you're using public key cryptography on the server, right, from a service provider. Instead of storing a password, all they store now is, is a public key, and then what's stored in my device is what's called a private key. Um, I need to activate that private key. So I need to touch my device or look at my device or or even lose like a local pin all on my device to activate that private key. And then it matches with the public key on the server. And that's the way I can log into things, right? And that sounds you know very complex, but it's very easy. What's now sitting on the server are public keys, right? Which is just, you know, a hashed piece of code that has no material value to hackers, mm. right? So even if if and when, you know, that, uh, you know, a, a data breach happens, you know, what won't happen is a hacker harvesting these credentials and re and reselling them on the dark web, which is what happens today. Right. I just I was just reading an article yesterday about, you know, half a million, you know, Zoom uh, username credentials are, are available on the dark web. Um, so, you know, really whatever you want to find, you, you, can, you, can, you can buy there because these things have been hacked and they're in the public domain and it's a self-perpetuating problem. And the only way to stop the cycle, the only way to break the cycle is to, to break the dependence on server-side shared secrets, passwords, and also OTPs and other things like that. So help me understand how this is different from a username and, and password combination. In other words, if my, you know, my username is stored on the remote server and my password is something that I have in my possession, how is what you're describing here, the, the public key is not the username and the, my private key is not my password? So the equivalent in your analogy would be the password being the public key and the username being the private key. I, that's, loosely okay. the, that's loosely the analogy. The difference is that, well, okay, let's play that scenario. So the, the, the password's sitting on a server, right? And usually the, the username is somehow associated with it and, and all that information is sitting on a server. So when there's a data breach, right? So say the Yahoo data breach, which happened you know, several years ago now, you know, 3 billion credentials are stolen. Most of those, you know, speaking for myself, I, I don't really have anything of material value, or I didn't, on the Yahoo network at that point. Mm -hmm. right? But what was most valuable there was that username password combination, because what happens is people then go and take that combination. You can again, buy them on the dark web for pennies. And programmatically, hackers will go to every single website of any sort of value and try to stuff that username password combination into a site to see if they can access it and hope I see. that they can, you know, have success and then, you know, cause all sorts of, you know, uh, damage to me. And that credential stuffing activity is is quietly, you know, a, a massive, massive problem, right? So in the U.S., you know, upwards of 90%, 80 to 90% of attempted logins to e-commerce sites are, are stuffed attempts, stuffing attempts, hmm. right? And that costs $5 billion a year to U.S. businesses based on successful credential stuffing attacks. That's just mm -hmm. the fraud costs alone. 
because 2% of these attempts are successful, right? Which is a crazy number. It's a very high number. So, so the, the damage there, so, so going back to what's the difference? So the difference is that if someone, you know, goes somehow steals a public key, there's no value to that, right? They, they, you can't, you can't, you know, reuse a private and public key pair on any other site and, he, and the public key itself has no material value. I see. So you really need to break the cycle that you need to take away the server side, you know, password and username and password credentials to, to, to stop this cycle. And, and the good news is as biometrics on handsets have, have really taken off, people have gotten accustomed to, you know, doing things like using your finger or your face to unlock a device, which was a, you know, was a new concept, you know, only five years ago, right? right. Using touch ID for the first time and, you know, Apple did the industry the great service by educating them on the, the benefits of, of touch. You know, the, the leaps that people need to make and, and will be making is that what used to mean unlock now means login. And those are the types of things that, that we want to enable if you're using you know, biometrics on a device. And how do you envision this transition taking place, the, the, the switchover over time? There is a uh, education and kind of a behavioral modification uh, change that, that, that needs to happen. And, and I think you know, we're, we're well aware of that. The, the good news is that, again, I think that the precedent has been set for people to adapt to easier unlock. Uh, and, and we think that people will do so for, for easier login as well. Now, there's some more nuanced use cases as well, right? So, so other things you can do is, say, use your phone to unlock your PC or use your phone to uh, authenticate a transaction on your PC. Now, these are all things that are enabled by our specifications and by public key cryptography in general. And so I think the more you know, advanced things will take people a little while to get used to, but generally people are attracted to ease of use. And that's a key thing that FIDO at least is trying to do with our you know, authentication specifications is make logging in not just more secure, but also easier, right? Or in fact, our tagline is simpler, stronger authentication. Because one thing you know, data shows is that if something's too hard for people to use, they won't use it. Right. Hmm. So traditional yeah. opt-in rates for multi-factor authentication, right? Opt-in rates for things like really complex PKI or even the, the, the dedicated OTP tokens I was talking about, you know, their their success rate's very low because people stop using it because it's too hard. So if it's too hard, I'm not going to use it. So for strong authentication to really take root at scale, it needs to be easy for people to use. And that's what we're trying to do, right? So let me give you some examples. And actually let me give you some, some other data points. So the challenge of the passwords, you know, if you ask people if they like passwords, some will say they, they like it because they're used to it. But ultimately, passwords cause barriers. You know, we've seen data that shows up to 50% of shopping cart abandonments are, are due to you know, people with password issues, right? So I go to a store, I, I browse around, I put something in my cart, and I'm there to ready to make my impulse buy, and oh, shoot, I don't have my password, right? Now that stops me from making that transaction. This happens with, with high frequency. Right, because it's it's just one more barrier to someone you know doing something, and so I think that you know getting rid of that necessity to have a password really you know, makes things a lot easier and will help people you know take part in the network economy a lot more effectively. So one one cool example of this most recently is eBay. eBay is now supporting FIDO2 or the FIDO specifications in in for user authentication. They're rolling it out gradually on new platforms, um, but right now if you go to eBay.com, say on your Android handset. You go to the, the, the website on your on your Chrome browser on, on Android, and you go to log into your account, you know, they'll give you the option to just use the, the, the native biometric. You can ditch your password. You don't need to use your password. You can just use the biometric on your phone. And bringing, you know, this capability to the web on the whole, something that, that FIDO's focused on with our partnership with W3C, 2019, we released something called Web Authentication or WebAuthn, 
which is part of the you know the set of 502 specifications that allows websites to actually you know bring this capability into into production uh, to address the you know the very large number of devices that can actually support this natively you know on handsets and on PCs. So we think that you know now that you know all the ingredients are in place, both a, a very large addressable user base you know with who have say Android phones and Windows desktops and other platforms as well, we'll see more and more websites you know actively you know choosing to deploy you know, FIDO authentication through WebAuthn to their users. You know users may or may not be aware that they're actually using you know the FIDO specifications. You know all all they really you know, need to be aware of is that this is a brand they trust and that it's a very easy user experience. Now that being said. We will be introducing some consumer marks, uh, consumer brands, um, and logos, so that over time consumers will start feeling more comfortable uh, with these kind of passwordless logins from service providers to support these specifications. So it'll be analogous mm-hmm. to seeing like a Bluetooth symbol or a Wi-Fi symbol when you at point of login. You know, users will be you know see a familiar user experience across logins across leading service providers. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, authentication is one of my favorite subjects. I love it. Awesome. You're just, you you are a fun guy to hang out with at a cocktail party. That's right, man. (laughs) You've got to understand what you're doing when you're authenticating is you're proving uh, to the system who you are. You're proving your identity. But Andrew is absolutely correct that passwords are probably the easiest thing to steal. And it is a shared secret that is all kept in one place. Hmm. Um, and and on his his comment on authentication tokens like the one-time passwords, the time-based passwords, uh, is also correct. That is just another shared secret. Uh, either it's short-term, uh, in the case of just the the number, right, the one-time password that we're getting, uh, much like the the your story today. That was that's a one-time password, or it can be a long-term problem too. If someone steals the seed to your password generating algorithm, they essentially have your your one-time passwords forever. That's still better than just a password because those things are are pretty secure and they're not easy to guess. But if I were to get a hold of, of an organization's seeds that their that their users have, I have all of their one-time passwords. Mm-hmm. Public keys, however, are useless for gaining access. I can keep a large collection of public keys on a service and if they get breached, very little is gained. Almost mm-hmm. nothing. In, in terms of getting into the system, nothing is gained. So what public key authentication does is it essentially distributes these authentication tokens so a bad actor can't just go to one place and get them all, hmm. right? So in other words, let's say you and I go to uh, use a website that we use a FIDO uh, means of authenticating, right? right? Your public keys on the server, my public keys on the server. Now that somebody goes and they steal the public keys, they don't gain anything. All they know is that what our public keys are. But if they want to get access for me, they have to steal my private keys. And then if they want to get access for you, they have to steal your private keys. And mm-hmm. imagine that scaling up to a million users. Now they have to go out and steal a million users' private keys if they want to get all that access to sell. It makes it much more difficult to do. I do take issue with one of the things that Andrew said. Uh, he said you can't reuse a key pair, a public key and private key pair on any other site. And that is not exactly true. In fact, I did just that yesterday. So there's a use case where I actually did use, reuse the same public private key pair on multiple machines. That's not for like web authentication. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is that if you're rolling out a FIDO thing, and maybe this is part of the FIDO protocol, I don't know, uh, or the yeah. uh, that, that you have to use a unique public-private key pair uh, to be considered compliant. 
but the risk is that if I'm using one public uh, private key pair to access everything, it's just like password reuse, right? Um, if someone gets a hold of my one private key, they have access to everything that I do. Also, the public keys will all be the same. So if somebody breaches multiple sites and sees the same public key in two different places, they'll know that's the same person. So it's it's useful to it's he's absolutely correct that you should be using different private keys to access different things. And you should require it. And you should require it, right? If you're if you're if you're building a solution or building a, an app, you should absolutely require it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, there's another solution that's kind of similar to this called SQRL uh, or Squirrel. Uh, a listener hit me up on this a couple months ago on Twitter, and I looked into it. It doesn't use public key, private key cryptography. It uses zero-knowledge proofs to do something very similar. I, I don't know that that's any better. I think public-private key is probably sufficient for now. Zero-knowledge proof does offer a little bit more uh, security for the user. It can, it can offer some concealing of information that you may not want to make public. I don't have any idea how zero-knowledge proofs work. Yeah. I've, actually, I've actually sat down with Matt Green in his office and had him explain it to me, <laughs> and I walked out of there knowing I lack the basic fundamental understanding to know what's going on in his Yeah, Matt Green is a very well-known cryptographer at Johns Hopkins, uh, right. p- perhaps one of the best-known cryptographers out there. Yeah. Uh, ni- nice to have access to him, Joe. Yeah, well, I, it, <laughs> it's one of the perks of the job, Dave. <laughs> to that point, I want to thank Andrew for coming on and explaining this stuff. I think... For me personally, I think we're so used to usernames and passwords. I, I think as you as you kind of heard in the in the interview, it took me a little while to wrap my head around exactly what the differences are to to get that aha moment of what's being stored where and what happens when things are breached and and how this is better. And uh, Andrew right. did a great job explaining it. He so, did. Uh, that was a very I, good interview. Uh, Everybody should know this is not something new. Systems administrators have been doing this for years for gaining access to SSH connections, you know, secure cell connections. I, I've been doing this, uh, even though I'm not a systems administrator, I set up SSH connections whenever I have to remotely access something. So there is no password. I don't have to use a password. It's a public private key solution for authenticating. Yeah. And then I, yeah. I set the Unix server or Linux server rather, um, to not accept passwords on remote login period. I see. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, again, thanks to Andrew for joining us and appreciate their efforts at the FIDO Alliance for trying to move things forward in this way. Our thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 